Hello and welcome. I am Joel McReynolds, and you are listening to my preaching podcast. I have the opportunity to share from God's Word and want to share God's message not only with the congregation of the churches I preach in, but also with you. You can find out more information about me on my website, joelmcreynolds.com, where you can also check out my blog. For now, I hope God speaks to you through today's message. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we know where we're headed. Joshua chapter 7. If you would turn there with me, please. Joshua chapter 7. For 43 years, he had been telling people that there was a World War II bomb buried under her bed. One night near the start of the war, she was sitting by the window and she was at her sewing machine when suddenly she heard a whistling noise. She got up from her machine, but was quickly struck by a blast of wind and knocked unconscious. But when she came to, the sewing machine was gone, and there was a hole in her floor and in her ceiling. She couldn't get any officials to check out her story, so she just moved her bed over the hole and lived with it for the next 40-something years. One day, a phone cable was being laid in the area. And because of her claims, a demolitions expert was called in to check for buried explosives. The smiling army officer asked, where's your bomb, Grandma? No doubt under your bed? She responded, yes, under my bed. And sure enough, they found a 500-pound bomb. So they evacuated the 2,000 people from the surrounding buildings, and the bomb squad detonated the bomb. And according to the 1984 report, the grandmother, now freed of her bomb, will soon receive a new apartment. You know, like that grandmother, many of us live with bombs under our bed. We have dark secrets that we think they've remained hidden. But the reality is no one is safe until they're removed. As we study Joshua 7 this morning, we learn that secret sin has a clear consequence. So before we jump into this passage, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would open our hearts, open our minds to the word as we're about to hear. Lord, may they be words from you, not words from my mouth, not just things that I've come up with. But Lord, let every word that comes be from your spirit. Lord, open our hearts, pierce our souls with your word this morning. Pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 5. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things that were under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Aiah, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land, 
So the men went up, and they spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabiram and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people, that is the people of Israel, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that secret sin invites woe. Secret sin invites woe. The first verse of this chapter begins with a word of contrast. But, well, what are we butting? There was a mountaintop victory at Jericho. Amazing things had happened. They went up to the city. They marched around it, and the power of God brought the walls down. We looked at that last week. So they were on this mountaintop, this amazing victory. But the amazing victory was shattered by secret sin. The narrator gives us some information up front that the people in the story don't know yet. And it does so for a good reason. Because this verse frames what happens in the rest of the story. The sons of Israel had acted unfaithfully. Why? Because God had put some things under a carom band. We talked a little bit about that last week. We'll talk more about it here in a minute. But Achan brought trouble on the whole nation of Israel because of his sinful action. And that is what frames this story, the theme of this story is God's wrath that must be assuaged. Ai was just a small fort. It was situated at the top of a hill. It was an easy target, especially compared to Jericho. And so following the same pattern that Joshua used with Jericho, he sent spies up to the city. And the victory should have been inevitable. They had seen greater things happen so recently. But instead, the Israelite soldiers went up and they were sent packing, running down the hill and leaving 36 dead brethren behind them. Now, 36 is not many. It's only about 1.2% of what they sent up. Yet, their hearts melted because the loss itself was embarrassing. Now, many have tried to interpret the events of this chapter by pointing to maybe a lack of prayer that happened before Joshua and the soldiers attacked Ai, and they didn't send enough people and all of this other stuff. They didn't wait on God's direction. But nowhere in the passage is any of that condemned. Verse 1 gives us the reason. The failure in Ai is because of a failure that had already taken place. It was not the cause of the problem. It was the result of a problem. And the loss was a sign of God's wrath, his anger toward them. Why? Because Israel had allowed sin to creep into their camp. And God cannot tolerate sin in his people. Now, I mentioned last week, God's wrath was not just against the Canaanites. Because he was prejudiced toward them for some reason. 
He had told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16 that the time of their sin had not yet come to pass. And so they could not go in and destroy the people in Abraham's time. Then they went through Isaac, Jacob, his descendants, the time in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the desert, and now is the time of their judgment. So this shows that God's not against a people. He's against sin. God is not open to charges of a double standard. He's not putting Israel up and saying, look how great they are, and putting the Canaanites up over here and saying, look how horrible they are. These people have my favor. These people don't. It's a sin problem. God is against sin. And his wrath stands against us when we stand against him. Israel had, albeit unknowingly, allowed sin to be in their midst. And because of that, they were under God's wrath. Now there's a distinction in the measure of sin between the Canaanites and Israelites. Leviticus 18 records the sins of the Canaanites by banning these things for Israel. Incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexual activity, and bestiality were banned to the Israelites. And because of those things, it says that the nations that God is casting out, they have been defiled. Leviticus 18, verse 24. By contrast, looking at that list of things, Achan's sin doesn't seem to be that big of a deal to us. But make no mistake about it. God calls his people to live in a pure and higher way. So what seems insignificant compared to the world is a big deal for his people. Now looking at that list, I see several that sound like our nation today. Sadly, the sin of adultery is extremely common in the world and even among churches. Homosexuality is celebrated by our culture and even in many of our churches. Children are sacrificed, not to Moloch or Baal, but to the gods of personal desires and so-called freedom through abortion. And some people, some preachers, refuse to address abortion in their churches because they know how volatile the issue is for their congregation. I don't think that's the case here. God is against these things. Dale Davis asks a haunting question, though. What makes us think that Israel is the only congregation who has been or ever will be under the wrath of God? Allowing secret sin brings God's wrath upon us, brings his wrath upon you, and his wrath brings woe. And Joshua demonstrates to us a proper demonstration, proper response to the situation. Look with me at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. Both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O oh Lord, what can I say, since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. 
and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Secret sin calls for seeking God. Joshua and the elders of Israel demonstrated proper response. Now, remember, they don't have the information that we have from verse 1. They don't really know what's going on. They just know God was with them. They had this great victory at Jericho, and all of a sudden, they're defeated at this little embattlement at Ai. But they respond with lament. They respond with mourning. The leader who had been magnified at the end of chapter 6 is now mortified in chapter 7. They were confused by their defeat at Ai. They did what we should all do when our lives are seeming to fall apart. They humbled themselves. They turned to God for direction and for his help. In sorrow, they sighed. Several commentators have looked at Joshua's response here, his prayer, and compared it to the Israelites, the first generation that had died out because of their unbelief. And they say, look at Joshua. He sounds just like him. He's, he's expressing his unbelief. But these are not words of unbelief. These are words of despair. These are laments. Look at the book of Lamentations. Look at some of the, the lamenting psalms. They, this is a prayer similar to those. Lord God, I don't understand why this is happening. Things are going bad. What is going on, and can you help us? It's not a formal prayer. It's an emotional response of a man who's afraid and who's confused by the situation around him. You know, God welcomes our honest prayers. He wants you to express your true feelings toward him, and he's big enough. He can take whatever you lash out with him. About. Joshua's address is directed. Notice how he frames this. Alas, O Lord God. It is Adonai Yahweh. It expresses an attitude of worship and respect toward God. It acknowledges that God is a covenant-keeping personal God of Israel and that he is the sovereign Lord. And his appeal is found in verse 9. He's concerned about the peril that Israel faces. He's concerned about that. But he's also concerned about God's honor among the nations. He says, if Israel is destroyed, if your people are destroyed, it will reflect poorly on God's reputation. That is what Joshua is concerned about. He's worried that Israel's defeat is robbing God. Of his glory. So he's not worried about his own reputation. He's worried about the great name of Yahweh and what the nations will think. Our goal is to glorify God. Matthew Henry said, We cannot urge a better plea than this God, what will you do for your great name? There are times in both our church life and in our personal lives when we we're confused. We just don't really know what's going on. We don't know what's happening. We don't have a clue what God is doing in our lives. And during those times, we should follow Joshua's example here. We should get on our knees in prayer, direct those to God, plead both our dangers and his honor. For he's the only one who can truly help. Secret sin calls us 
to seek God. Look with me at verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, that is the word carom that we talked about last week, and have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their things, their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things... Under the man shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Secret sin requires repentance. Secret sin requires repentance. After Joshua and the elders have prayed, God reveals to them the cause of his wrath. Secret sin is in the camp. Now, there's a series of verbs in verse 6. The Hebrew verbs, they just come rapid fire. There's six of them, one after the other, in one sentence. And all of them regard the sin that Israel had allowed in their midst. God had drawn a line and said, these things are mine. Don't take them. And someone Stepped across the line. They crossed God and took what he said. These are mine. And because of that, not just one individual, but the whole of Israel was responsible. Because although it was one individual who failed, God saw it as national disobedience. When one person crossed God, they all did. Now this kind of corporate solidarity is not really familiar to us as individualistic Americans. We cry out, that's not fair. Achan was the one who sinned, not Israel. Why is Israel being punished? We don't think in terms of corporate success or failure, but that's not the case if you're in the military. You're responsible for more than just you. You're part of a team. You're part of a squad. You're part of a unit. Rarely is anything viewed as individual. You rise or you fall as one. If one person's bunk isn't made properly, it's going to get flipped and everybody's going to be out doing some PT. It's a failure not only of the individual, but for his squad mates for not making sure that was done properly. And therefore, the whole squad is punished. Now, complain as we might, it was not our place to complain. It was better for us 
in the military to fear our leadership and what they might do so that we would correct our member. And that's the same for us, for the people of God. We are to hold one another to God's standard. The Israelites had to take responsibility for allowing sin to take place. God would not protect their army again until the sin was removed from the camp. So as long as those Kerem idols, those idols that were destined for destruction, remained in Israel's camp, Israel was under God's wrath. His favor would not be with them. Israel had to deal with their sin. And God gave them details on how to do so. He says you need to consecrate yourselves. What does that mean? To consecrate means to prepare to approach God through this ritual that reminds us, reminded them of how sinful they were and how holy God is. And then they were to follow God's prescribed method. They were come, to come before God in three basic elements of Israelite society. First the tribe, then the clan, and then the family. Israel's secret, secret sin required their repentance. It says that you can't stand before your enemies until you've removed them. And the one who has taken these things under the man, all that he has because he has transgressed the Lord. He has com committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Everything that he has will be destroyed. Israel is to show their repentance. Now repentance is more than just saying sorry. It's more than just a feeling of remorse. It's more than just a feeling of regret. It's more than just feeling bad about the situation. Repentance is recognizing that our sin is offensive to God. It's literally the act of changing one's mind about the situation. It involves removing the offense. And so for Israel, that meant the destruction of the individual who had crossed the Lord. But here's the reality. Each of us must repent of our own sin. We must remove these things where we have crossed God's law. Christian people should be repenting people. To become a Christian, the first thing that you learn in order to become a Christian is you must repent of your sin and be born again. In Luke 5, 32, Jesus said that he came to call sinners to repentance. And later he said that without repentance, you will perish. That's found in Luke 13, 5. But repentance is not just a one-time event. You must repent for all of your sins, even the secret ones. Sin keeps us from enjoying our relationship with God. It prevented Israel from victory. And like Israel, the church is required to address sin corporately in our midst. The contemporary American church has been so afraid to become overly zealous and drive people away that we err on the side of laxity. We forget or perhaps just ignore the threats that Jesus gave to the churches in Revelations 2 and 3. We forget the destructive power of the Spirit when Ananias and Sapphira came and they said that they sold their property and they got X amount for it and they gave all of it 
to the church when in reality they only gave a portion of it to the church. And what happened to them? They died. The Spirit struck them dead. There was judgment that came upon them. We ignore the direct commands of Scripture for church discipline. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, remove the unrepentant from the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, that you are to seek the repentance of the brother or the sister who has sinned. And if they repent, restore them. That's the goal. But if they refuse to repent, he says, you are to put them outside the church and treat them like they're an outsider. Now, what does that mean? What do we do to outsiders from the church? You tell them the gospel, and you call them to repentance. The story is the same either way. Gospel and repentance. Repentance is necessary. Whether individuals or in the church or in the community of Israel, secret sin requires repentance. Verse 16, so Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel nearby tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerites. And he brought the family of the Zerites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near man by man, and Aphim, son of Carmen, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Aphim, My son, I implore you, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, or Babylon, your version may say, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tents. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. And they poured them out before the Lord. Secret sins will be bared. And what I mean by that is it will be made naked before God and before his people. God's prescribed process gave time for the violator to identify himself, to come forward and confess his sin, but yet no one came forward. And one wonders if grace would have been offered if he did. But it doesn't matter. Because Achan didn't come forward. Instead, he sounds like the fool, the wicked of Psalm 10. Psalm 10, verse 6, he says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. Psalm 10, verse 11, he says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and he never sees. Psalm 10, verse 13, why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he... Say to himself, he won't call me to account. See, we often think like that. We think we can get away with our sin. We think 
that we can, nobody's going to pay attention. Nobody's going to know. It's secret. Only I know. But your sin will find you out. Numbers 32 and verse 23 says that. The nature of sin is such that whether or not others discover your sin, your sin will discover you. You can't run from its consequences. Sin carries within itself the power to pay the sinner back. And sinner's payback is hell. It cannot be tamed. It cannot be outrun. It can't be shaken off. No matter how safe you think you are with your sin, with it, your sin will find you out. Achan is methodically and clearly identified through God's process. He was caught. Nobody can hide from God. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 24 says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I don't see him? That's what the Lord says. That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Having been identified, Joshua's instruction to Achan is basically saying, just tell the truth. God wants his people to be true. And the youth, we were looking at the Psalm 51 this past week, and we're going to continue this week with it. But in verse 6 it says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. Other words would say, You desire integrity in the innermost being. By confessing to this act, by bringing forth the truth, Achan would in fact be glorifying God because God is the God of truth. And so he confessed. And if you read his confession, it sounds a lot like another confession we've heard back in Genesis chapter 3. He saw with his eyes something that was beautiful and appealed to him. It was pleasurable to his eyes. He desired it. He coveted it. So he took of it. He also took some gold and silver, but really wasn't all that much gold or silver compared he rationalized his sin. He didn't think that God would see it. He tried to hide from the one who sees all. And he did what we all try to do. Try to cover up our secret sin. Achan's confession was confirmed when the messengers went. And they dug up in his tent and they found the idols. Brought them out in front of all the people. To show how guilty he was. See, what Achan didn't realize was that his sin affected more than just him. Like Achan, our actions affect more than just us. You must be aware. Beware the temptation of rationalizing your sin, thinking that they are too small or too personal to affect anyone else. The secret snare leads us all to shame. But James 5.16 says, Therefore you are to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another so that you may be healed. For the righteous prayer, the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We must choose to confess our sin to one another rather than waiting and allowing it to be bared. Look with me at verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, 
his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Acre to this day. Secret sin demands atonement. Achan contrasts here with someone we've already encountered. Rahab, a Canaanite, who became like an Israelite based on her confession of God and her faithful actions toward his people. She was destined for destruction, but she was redeemed by her faith. But by his lack of belief that was demonstrated by his wicked actions, Achan became like a Canaanite and was set apart for destruction. See, repentance is necessary, but repentance doesn't remove the consequence. God demands absolute holiness from his people, and his wrath must be satisfied. According to Leviticus chapter 27, verse 29, nothing that is set apart for destruction, nothing that was carried, could be ransomed. And since Achan took some carom items, he himself became carom, set apart for destruction. Having disobeyed God's command to destroy everything, he himself was destroyed. Achan and all that he owned, his possessions, his livestock, yes, even his family, was destroyed by his sin. Because sin had to be atoned for. Everything that was intimately associated with him was stoned and burned. He was completely cut off from Israel. His line is done. There's no grandkids, no great-grandkids to carry on the family name. That's the greatest dishonor in Israelite culture, to have your name cut off. And that's what happened. Achan's punishment seems severe, but Achan's offense was severe, and the punishment fit the crime. For he had stolen from God, taken things that were his. Now there's some Hebrew wordplay in these last two verses. Achan brought Achor. That sounds kind of similar, but Achor means trouble. The trouble he brought on Israel was brought back on him, and the place became known as the Valley of Acre, the Valley of Trouble. And the valley was filled with a heap of stones that was to be a reminder to Israel of the consequences of sin. But this valley is later mentioned in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 65 and Hosea chapter 2, as being a place of new beginning, and a place called the door of hope. Isn't it just like God to take a place of sorrow and defeat and to turn it into a place of hope and joy? Sin had drastic consequences. And it has 
drastic consequences. So we should seek to avoid sin as much as possible. Jesus spoke in hyperbole about this in Matthew chapter 5, saying that it's better for an offending part of the body to be cut off rather than the body, the whole person, to be cast into sin. But the reality is that we have all fallen into sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. So we are all like Achan. We've all received the death penalty because that's what we deserve. But God's righteous justice demands that penalty from us. All sin, even secret sin, requires atonement. But here's the reality. We can't atone for it ourselves. We are finite, limited beings. And our offense toward an eternal God is an eternal offense. So only someone who is eternal could pay the price. You don't have to atone for your sin yourself because God's only begotten Son paid it for you. Jesus made the required atonement with his sacrificial death on the cross. Since he's eternal, his payment is eternal. It never ends. It's effective for your past sins. It's effective for your future sins. It's effective for everyone. It doesn't end. There's, it doesn't give out. It's effective for you. It's effective for me. And it's effective for everybody who's outside of these walls. The place of suffering. The place, the very image of despair, that Roman cross, is a beacon of hope for everyone. Because through Jesus' death, he gives life. Romans 6.23, the final part says, The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here's my question for you today. Have you accepted his gift? And if not, will you accept it? And if you have accepted it, what secret sin are you still hiding that you need to confess to Jesus and let him deal with it? Jesus paid it. Will you give it all to him today? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe to catch the latest episodes and find me on YouTube. Until next time, go out and pierce the darkness with the light of his word.